Good morning, Disciples Church. My name is Beth Murray, and I have the privilege of reading scripture with, uh, with you today. We're going to be reading from 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 15. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of their surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be. Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Disciples Church. It's so good to see you and good to be with you as always. My name is Jonathan Mosier. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are so glad that you're with us today. If you're not already there, turn in your Bibles, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. If you've been with us for the last six weeks now, we've been in, in the midst of a series really discussing what gospel culture looks like within the context of the church. And so uh, we had spent the first three weeks talking about what is the gospel. If we, had to, if we had to distill the gospel down to its basic element, what would the gospel be? And then from there, we talked about who the gospel pursues and what it enables in us, the freedom into which we're called because of what Jesus Christ accomplished on our behalf. And then we spent the next three weeks talking about what the gospel does in us, how it calls us into stillness, into reliance on God, into a relationship with God, how he's gifted his community for the benefit of the church and for the growth of the church. And then finally, last week, talking about the gift that is community. What is gospel community? What is it we're actually called into with one another? And so if you've been kind of following along with us, what you've realized is that each week we've been narrowing the focus just a little bit. And as we come to these final three weeks in these series now, we're, we're arriving at what is incredibly practical. What does the gospel actually do in, in terms of the way that it works itself out in our lives? How does the gospel play itself out? Now, there are as many answers to that question as there are people in this room. If we were to go around and talk about how the gospel plays itself out in your life, what it works, uh, how it works itself out, we could talk about how it plays itself out in your, in your family, in your job, in your interactions with neighbors. We could pick any element of your life and we could see how the gospel lens begins to transform the way that you view those things and approach 
those things. But in these three weeks, what we want to do specifically is talk about three elements that the, the New Testament spends a profound amount of time discussing. And specifically today, we're looking at how the gospel enables generosity and giving. Now, I say that with a smile because even as I say that, I realize that for many, there is a visceral gut-level reaction to those words. And there's a whole lot of reasons why churches have a tendency to actually avoid talking about money at all. And it is that sense of discomfort, that nervousness, that tenseness that people sometimes get when the conversation of money is brought up in the church that that so many churches just avoid the conversation altogether. I mean, for some, the reason that they avoid talking about money is because they've had bad experiences in church that focus on money. They've heard that conversation abused. They've heard texts pulled from their context in Scripture and used as a baseball bat to try to drive people into being generous. For others, they avoid talking about, the context, uh, about money within the context of the church because they don't want to reinforce people's negative stereotypes, right? They don't want to reinforce the stereotypes that people have about, about, about prosperity gospel preachers on TV or about the specific experience that they might have had in a church. And yet, others just think it's bad form to talk about money altogether. But I think if we stop and actually consider how the Bible approaches money, what we realize is that at the very least, that is a short-sighted perspective on how we view money. Because if the church doesn't address money, it would likely be the only venue in your life where money is not addressed. Particularly in the current environment in which we find ourselves, I mean, if you paid attention to the polling that goes on week to week, one of the things that you know is that economic uncertainty in the state of the economy, particularly as it regards inflation and jobs and all of those sorts of things, is now the number one concern of most Americans. If you pay attention to the news at all, it's inevitable that a huge focus is the financial markets and the impact on the lifestyle of Americans, concerns about ballooning inflation and threats of economic stagnation, shortages of goods and international uncertainty. People are worried. People are concerned because they see the impact that all of these things have on their retirement accounts, their food, their energy bills at the gas pump. And so to avoid talking about this would not only be short-sighted, but I think it would also potentially be spiritually harmful. In fact, I'll remove that word potentially. It would be spiritually harmful. Because there is no source better equipped to address the role of money in our lives and our view and perspective of money than the Bible itself. The Bible, every time it talks about money, views it as an indicator of the posture of your heart. Hebrews chapter 13 in addressing this idea says, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have for he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. In other words, one of the things that drives our perspective of money is the understanding of God's care and protection and provision for us. Our money becomes a reflection of whether or not we believe that truth. Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, Jesus speaks and says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That, that money is not only just a reflection of the things that you value, but where you put your money inevitably will lead your heart. And finally, in a staggering truth, one in every ten verses in the Gospels addresses money. 
the temptation for us in our Christianity is to begin to create a divide, a separation or a divorce between the spiritual and the material. That's been true in every culture, but I think it is particularly true of ours. And what's interesting is that every time that that idea comes up in Scripture, Jesus unequivocally connects the two. He connects our spiritual view of things, our spiritual perspective, the eyes of our heart, the affections that drive us. He connects those things to the way that we use our material goods and the way that we view our material goods. In other words, you are going to put your money towards what you value, and what you put your money towards is inevitably the things that you are going to begin to value. It's one of the few external indicators that were actually given in Scripture as to where our heart is And the reason that this topic is so valuable is because it shows us the dissonance between what we claim to believe and what we actually believe. In fact, Matthew chapter 6, verse 24 says it this way, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So understand as we address this topic today, as uncomfortable as it may potentially be for you, your spiritual maturity will always be curbed until you begin to see God as the reason for and source of your financial provision. Until money is properly prioritized in your life, until you actually have an accurate and godly view of it, you'll either be under its control or you'll be under the delusion that you can control it. As we come to this text today, it's a fascinating context. I wish we had time to dive into all of it this morning. At some point, I'm sure we'll be able to get into the fuller context of what's happening here. But the context for the verses that were read for us this morning in verses 6 through 15 actually begins in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. You can go back and read it on your own time. But Paul is coming to the Corinthian church. He's taking up an offering for needy Christians in the Jerusalem church. And I want you to see that, that in his call for the Corinthians to be generous in their giving, Paul actually gives a motivation for that generosity. In other words, he doesn't just come with his handout or an offering plate or an expectation of financial generosity for any particular motivation. He says, no, there is one particular motivation that has to animate and drive us as believers. And notice what he says that that motivation is. We find it in verse 8 of this text, and here's what he says. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Now, the language of verse 8 is is unique in this text because Paul is saying here, God is able to provide enough for all of your needs and enough so that you might be generous in giving towards his work, whatever that might be. And not only does he say that God is able to do that, but he says that God is able to abound in it. That God takes a particular delight in providing for his people And that we, in turn, can take a particular delight in being generous with what he's given us. As one theologian pointed out about this, whenever you see the phrase, God is able, it is an indication that man is not able to do that thing. 
It's a worthwhile reminder as we're reading Scripture that whenever you come across that phrase, God is able, the inherent implication is we are not able to do this in and of ourselves. And this becomes such a vital truth in the context of generosity because there are all sorts of situations in which our thinking and our planning and our striving and our motivations might lead us to the conclusion of uh, when we come to the context of generosity of saying, I barely have enough for me I barely have enough to plan for my own future, to leave an inheritance for my kids, to provide what my family needs. I barely have enough for me, let alone enough to give for the sake of the ministry. But Paul's reminder right off the bat in verse 8 is that we have to start from a wholly different perspective. That our motivation for generosity isn't just a numbers game or a calculation on our part, but it's actually first a reminder of where our provision lies. So listen, God might use your job or your retirement account or your parents or any one of a number of means to distribute his provision to you, but it is God who sits behind all of those things. And we'll address that more as we get further into this text, but here's the the nut at the center of what it is that Paul is saying here. He's saying God has given abundantly, and notice the connection, so that you can live sufficiently. And that connection, I think, is really vital because one of the things that we really struggle with at first is confusing our own needs and our wants. If we were to begin to break down the things in our life that we actually need, the, the list is relatively short, right? It's food and clothing and shelter. At the very basis of what we actually need, that's the things that we most desperately cannot live without. But those are the very things that God guarantees He's going to provide for us. And so as we begin to struggle with the idea of generosity, The truth of the matter is that many of us struggle with it because we don't actually believe that God will meet our needs. Or we've so confused our wants with our needs that we don't, we can't actually imagine how it is that God could actually provide for those things. We believe that our needs and our wants are a burden in which we solely are responsible. And one of the indicators of the wrong belief that we have is the extent to which we live in anxiety regarding our finances. And it is so easy, as we already addressed this morning, it is so easy, particularly in our current cultural moment, to live in that anxiety. Fears abound. And that's without taking into consideration things like how am I going to pay for my kid's college fund or how am I ever going to retire or how am I going to be able to take a vacation now and then or how am I going to be able to move or any of the other natural considerations that we might have. But we find in the words of Jesus a reminder. It's echoed by Paul in the Philippians. And that reminder is this, that we need not be anxious because it is God who supplies our needs. Now, what's the proof for that? We find it in verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. 
Now, Paul kind of switches back between very practical, pragmatic language and kind of poetic language all throughout this text. So there's a little bit of parsing that needs to be done. But notice the the way that he addresses this. The very same God who supplies the seed to the sower and the bread for food is the same God who's going to provide seed for you and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Paul's saying the reason we can trust God to provide is that he has always and already proved himself faithful in generosity to us. Paul's reminder to you first and foremost is look at your own life, look at what you have, look at what you've been given, look at how God has taken care of you to this point and be reminded that that very same God continues to be in control, that he is not caught off guard, he is not forgetful, and he is not unfaithful to us. And Paul uses the illustration of the farmer to make this point. So the farmer might very well wake up one day and say, look at all that I have. Look at all that belongs to me. I have planted the seed. I watered the earth. I tended the shoots. I harvested the crop. I am entitled to everything that I've earned. But notice where Paul begins the conversation. His reminder is this, but who supplied the seed? Paul's saying you haven't gone back far enough in your line of thinking to actually see God's hand of provision at work. Our tendency is to get so caught up in what we do and what we provide and how hard we work and the things that we accomplish and therefore are entitled to that we forget that there is a starting point that apart from the hand of God could not have happened. So we, much like the farmer, could say the same thing. Well, I went to school and I worked hard and I got a job and I I worked those extra hours and I stayed late and I got in early and I missed time with my family and I did all of these things. So of course, I'm entitled to what I've earned. But the question for us comes back, and who gave you the ability to work? Who gave you a mind with the intelligence to process the things that you had to do on a daily basis? Who gave you the physical stamina and strength to wake up in the morning and show up at your job? Who, who brought you into the particular economy in which you were born, in the particular nation in which you were born, where you were able to find a job to begin with? All you have to do is look at Acts chapter 17 to realize that God is behind all of these things, that he is working in ways that we don't even take into consideration, and that ultimately, no matter where your paycheck comes from, your provision comes from God. To the extent that you've been gifted in any area of your life, where did that come from? Seed to the sower and bread for food. He's saying God is the source of your provision. And since he is the source of your provision, notice the line of thinking that Paul carries out. He then is able to increase your provision. Again, this is why Paul started in verse 8 by saying it's God that's able to do these things because we want to think about how much we're going to let God have. We look at our budgets and we look at our, our income and we look at all of these different considerations and we go, okay, which part of this actually belongs to God? And God is starting at the beginning saying, no, 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 it all belongs to me already. You are a steward of what I've granted you. And whenever we forget that, and whenever we forget that everything that we have comes from God, inevitably it's going to cause us to view our belongings as owners 
rather than as stewards. Everything we have belongs to Him, comes from Him, and is to be used for His glory. As the old hymn says, He owns the cattle on a thousand hills and the wealth in every mine. See, for the Christian, we don't give in order to get. We get in order to give. In other words, I don't have money for money's sake. I have money so that I may abound in every good work, according to verse 8. And notice, too, the extent of his provision to us, because he's not just going to limit it to the physical. Notice what he writes in verse 9. He says, as it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now, this is a quote from the book of Psalms. In the book of Psalms, it actually references the psalmist himself. And so there's a little bit of disagreement among uh, different, different critics and different theologians as to who this references, but given the context of 2 Corinthians chapter 9, I think it's fairly clear that this is actually a reference to God's provision for us. That not only is He providing for our physical provision, but He's actually providing for us spiritually as well. This goes back to what we talked about in those first three weeks, that everything you are as a Christian, your forgiveness and your adoption and your identity, you did nothing to accomplish It was granted freely to you, that Jesus freely provided what you could never afford, that he did it knowing you were incapable of paying him back, as Pete mentioned earlier, and as Romans chapter 3 talks about at length. And what's more, the gift that he gave you, the gift of eternal life, the gift of a new family, a new identity, a new name, is a gift that's invaluable. Because what is, what is your life worth? What is your soul worth? And the obvious answer is that it's worth infinitely more than any material good, because if you don't have it, material goods can't even be enjoyed. See, the connection Paul makes is to respond to the generosity of God by living generously. The gospel, then, is the basis for our generosity. It's the reason that we freely give. And so from there, I just want to pause for one moment to make a little insert here for anybody here that hasn't experienced the goodness of the grace of Jesus Christ. Because if you're here and you haven't experienced that goodness, you haven't experienced that grace, if you're here and you haven't experienced the love of God and you don't understand or appreciate the love of Jesus Christ for you personally, then this whole conversation of a generosity born of the gospel is lost on you to begin with. And where you need to start is with the understanding that Jesus is after your heart not your stuff. Jesus is after your heart. He's after you. You are the treasure in God's eye. You are the joy that was set before Christ when he went to the cross. And any conversation about giving that doesn't start with the giving of your heart inevitably leads to an empty religious exercise. And a religion, religion in this context, all we mean is this, that you're giving to appease God, to pay Him back, to put Him in your debt. God, I gave you this, now you do that in exchange for me. It gives with an attitude that says, how much do I actually have to give God to get Him off my back? 
It gives resentfully. Writing a check or dropping cash with no sense of grace transformation. The gospel enables you to be free to live out of the generosity you've been freely given. So with the principle of God's ownership and provision laid down for us, Paul now turns his attention to the incredibly practical. He says, what should you do now if you know this to be true? And he gives the answer in verse 6. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So there's a general truism in this idea of harvesting, which is the picture that Paul is using for us, and that general truism is this, the more you plant, the more you harvest. The less you plant, the less you can expect to harvest. And there is a true statement that is being communicated in this text, which is this, you cannot outgive God. Now, unfortunately, that very true phrase has been co-opted by some within the so-called prosperity gospel movement. And that prosperity gospel movement simply says this, if you can give X amount of money to this ministry, God will, God will reimburse you tenfold for your generous donation. And there's all sorts of problems with that ideology and ripping this verse from its context to try to make it say something like that. The first problem with that attitude should actually be fairly obvious, but it it isn't always, which is you're treating God in that moment like a divine investment strategy. If I give him this amount, he's going to give me this sort of solid return on my investment, and God is not a stock in your investment portfolio. That's not the way that he works with us. So when people say, ah, if I give money generously, I will reap money bountifully, do you understand that that doesn't actually match the illustration that's given in this text? Because notice again what Paul says in verse 8. God will supply and multiply your seed for sowing. That's your financial instrument. It's your money. And increase the harvest of what? Your righteousness. In other words, to imagine that if I give God X amount of money and therefore he's going to give me X plus 10% in return is to say that if I give God this seed, he's going to give me more seed in return. But that's not the promise of this illustration. A harvest of righteousness, that there is a spiritual harvest that comes with generosity. And we might in our lives see that harvest directly or indirectly. So, for example, if we give money to missionaries or to church planters or to some other sort of ministry, we may never get to see what God actually does with that money. We may never get to see personally the conversations that that missionary or pastor or individual is able to have with someone who has never heard the gospel before. And yet, as that person responds to the gospel through the enlightening of the Holy Spirit in their lives and the enlivening of their dead heart to the truth of the gospel, there is a true spiritual bounty that is being reaped in part because of the sowing of that financial seed. Or perhaps there have been some in this room who've been the recipients or on the giving end where they've been able to see this play out directly where God, in ways that you could not quite express or could not quite trace, 
conveyed to you that you ought to be generous towards a certain person or in a certain circumstance and in a way that was difficult for you and perhaps you had to battle through, you were willing to part with money and you sought answer a prayer in someone's life that you didn't even know was there. God is able to do incredible, incredible things when we're faithful in these truths. But the problem doesn't just end with viewing God as an investment strategy. It's also summed up in this quote that I came across this week from one particular commentator. He said it this way, reluctance to sow generously reflects a refusal to trust that God is all-sufficient and all-gracious. And we could say the converse, and it'd also be true. A desire to sow generously reflects a confidence in God's provision. And the trouble that we sometimes have is that in an, effort not into, not, in an effort to not fall into the prosperity gospel trap, we actually miss the principle that's being presented here in 2 Corinthians 9, namely this, the assurance, the assurance of this verse is not that God will serve our materialistic desires, but that when being faithful in generosity, He will, one, meet our needs, and two, provide us the means to be generous. So with that truth in place, how are we to give? Verse 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Paul says, before I explain to you why we should give, let me explain to you how you shouldn't give. And he starts by saying this, don't give reluctantly. Since God cares primarily about your heart, and since everything belongs to Him already, do you understand that you are not impressing Him by giving? That God doesn't see the number of zeros at the end of the check and go inherently by the amount that you've given that person. That person has really accomplished something for the kingdom. Because to make that statement would be to presume that God only works at the behest of our generosity. And it presumes that everything we have doesn't already belong to Him. No, what He's concerned with is the heart. And He's not impressed when we begrudgingly submit to what he's called us to do. It's like if you've ever been in a position to ask your child to do something around the house and they do it, but the whole time they're huffing. You ask them to take out the trash and they go over and they slam the garbage can and they throw the bag down and stuff spilling all over. And they, did they technically obey? Yeah, but were you honored in that obedience? No. See, God doesn't need your money but he invites you into generosity to see what he is able to do to cause you to put your trust in him. And as one theologian said it, if your giving is characterized by grief over what you might have gotten had you kept the money yourself, God is not pleased. But secondly, he says, not only don't, don't give reluctantly, he says, but don't give under compulsion. And that word is so fascinating because compulsion is, what, is at what's at the base of most charitable giving. 
Most charitable giving, at least as we've seen it or seen it portrayed, is needs-based giving where you are compelled to give, where you are driven into giving. So that plays itself out like this. We show you a picture of an adorable child in a foreign country, and you give us $5 a month to soothe your conscience for not doing something for that kid. And people have gotten smarter about this as time has gone on. You go to the grocery store now, and they ask you the question when you're leaving, do you want to round up for the 12 cents to support three-legged puppies who don't have a home? And you are put in a position where if you say no, you're essentially saying, no, I don't want to help adorable three-legged puppies who've been abandoned. I want my 12 cents. Right? That's compulsion. And my point in that is not to blast those charities or to, or, or to minimize work that they may potentially be doing, but my point is to say this, that is not how God invites us into giving. If you are giving out of compulsion, out of obligation, out of guilt, you are by necessity giving in order to get. Either to assuage your own guilt, or to earn favor in somebody else's eyes. And Paul's answer in that moment is to say, if you're giving for that reason, keep your money. Consider instead what's broken in your perspective, in your worldview, what's, what's off in your heart as it relates to finances. Because when you give that way, your giving is not generous, it's selfish, inherently. So what then is the right way to give? Verse 7, give as you've decided in your heart. And there might be a temptation among some to go, phew, there's no number. I can just give whatever I want, and as long as I'm comfortable with that number, I'm good to go. But remember the context of everything else that's been said in this passage to this point. In light of God's generosity toward you, and with the understanding that his provision is intended to lead you to give generously, therefore give as you've decided in your heart. Well, that makes it a lot harder, doesn't it? Suddenly we are pining for the 10% tithe of the Old Testament. But what's fascinating in this text is that Paul doesn't begin the conversation of generosity with the tithe, even though that would have been the cultural context that he understood. If you remember, the tithe is established during the time of Abraham. Ten percent of everything is to be given to God in a demonstration as as a token of realization that everything you have is from God. But interestingly, Paul doesn't start there in this text. He also doesn't dismiss that standard in in the New Testament. We're never told that it's entirely gone, but the lack of The absence of the mention of the tithe in this text ought to cause us to pause, to consider for a minute what our giving looks like, because what 2 Corinthians 9 is giving us is something very different altogether. The New Testament approach to giving emphasizes the approach of the heart above a raw number. And you find this interesting pattern all throughout the New Testament because the Bible doesn't doesn't view wealth as inherently good or bad. It doesn't inherently view wealth as evil and poverty as good or vice versa. Instead, it says that there is a righteous and an unrighteous use of money. So we find this as Jesus is speaking to the elderly widow who uh, gave one coin into an offering, or rather talking about her. Jesus calls her righteous because she gave in faith in her poverty. 
And by the same token, Jesus condemns the Pharisees, though they had given much more than that woman had, because they didn't do it out of a heart of love and joy, but out of self-righteousness. So understand what he's saying. He's saying it is possible to be rich and a hoarder, and it is possible to be poor and a hoarder. It is possible to be rich and to be generous, and it's possible to be poor and be generous. And so Paul's answer to this conundrum is to say this, prayerfully consider what God would have you to give. And this makes all sorts of practical sense for us because circumstances differ from one person to another and from one point in time in our lives to another. So we go back to that question we started with, which is this, what does your bank statement actually say about you? You're to go back and see where you put your money and where you didn't, where your giving went and where it didn't. Where is the cause of Christ in that? What does it convey about your heart and what you value? What does it communicate about you? And for some, if you were to look at your financial statement, it just states that you've made bad decisions. I mean, there, the truth of the matter is there are some people who are giving, for instance, a 10% amount of money would just break you financially. You just couldn't do it. You're not in a position to do that. It would be too financially detrimental right at this moment to step into that sort of a giving. And so maybe the conversation for you right now is we've got to get our financial house in order. We've got to figure some things out while trying to be generous with the little bit that we have. And for some others to pick a number at random, that 10% amount might be something that you don't feel in the least. Or it doesn't even touch on whether or not you're dependent upon God for provision. Each one, as he's decided in his heart. For God loves a cheerful giver. Much has been made of that word cheerful, and rightfully so. It comes from the Greek word hilarion, which is where we get our word hilarious. It literally means a hilarious giver. It's a very odd usage. I mean, we can't even imagine really a context in which this kind of word would be used. It's the idea of laughing all the way to the offering, right? But at the very root of it, what is a cheerful giver? It's a worshiper. And that word worship comes from an old English word, worthship. And it literally means that in worship, you are seeing what God is worth. And you are giving what he's worth. So follow what he's saying in verse 7. He's saying obedience in giving is the product of worship. It is a piece of our worship. It is not separated from our spiritual lives. It's actually a piece of our spiritual lives. And therefore, true generosity can only mark your life when you experience the profound generosity of Jesus Christ. So if you're giving out of that joy, out of that understanding of the gospel, the amount inevitably takes care of itself because you're looking for more opportunities to share in that joy of Christ. One final principle Beginning in verse 11, you will be enriched in every way. Why? To be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. 
For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, which is the cause of our giving, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. In other words, your generosity, born of the gospel, actually stirs up a deeper understanding of the gospel in others. And the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. All the attention gets drawn back to God. Verse 13, we give in accordance with the gospel, and what he's saying is this, to the extent that God has blessed you, it is not meant to terminate with you. It's meant to lead you into generosity, which leads to much being made of God. Generosity born of the gospel has an eternal impact in the hearts and lives of other people. And notice the response that it creates when Christians are generous, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. It creates thankfulness. It creates the opposite of giving out of compulsion or obligation or reluctantly. Thankfulness in our hearts. Because generosity meets the needs of others. It declares the gospel that you believe. It sets you free from the prison of societal expectations. See, if I can grasp the heart of generosity, then my my worth is no longer defined by how much I make or what I drive or where I live or what I wear. I'm free to enjoy the good gifts of God while I live an open-handed life. So what now? Each week we've been trying to leave with something practical for you to consider, to take home, to pray about, to talk about. And the invitation this week is to take the time to look back and consider what your generosity reveals about your heart and what you value to think through, to talk through if you're married or if you have a family. What does it look like for us to be generous? Have we been generous? To do the work of considering what what your giving reveals about your own heart and what you value. And in order to help accommodate that, we provided this week uh, a handout for you um, called Joyfully Generous, um, discussing that idea of what actually is generous giving. And it's just meant as a guide to help you think through, pray through, consider what your giving reveals about your life. And so our invitation to you this week is to not let this conversation end for you here right now, just as we've talked about every week. Let this conversation drive you and motivate you this week to actually study out and consider the way that this plays out in your life and the connection, the direct connection that it has to our understanding of the gospel. And it's that very same understanding of the gospel that drives us this morning to the table. Because no matter what topic we discuss on any given morning, when we come to the Lord's table, we are seeing a picture, we are acting out a scene, as it were, of the generosity of Jesus Christ for us. As we partake in the juice and the wine, it's a demonstration that his blood was freely shed. His precious, infinitely valuable blood was freely shed for you. And as we partake of the bread, we're reminded that his body was given for us. That the true 
nature of the gospel is shown in the generosity of God in giving his only begotten son for us and the humility of Christ to give what was infinitely valuable for a people who least deserved it. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take just a few minutes to be silent and to be still as we have each week, to consider our hearts, to consider the gospel, to spend time with our Father. And then when that time comes to a close, when you hear the music begin, you can begin making your way up the center aisle to receive the elements returning through the outside. And then please wait and we'll take those elements together in just a few moments. But let's pray and go into that silence. Father, we know that every good and perfect gift comes from you. So we thank you for being so extravagant in your mercies towards us. It was your goodness, God, that led you to create us. It's your generosity that sustains us. It's your patience that carries us. It's your love that redeems us. So we pray that you'd remind us in this morning that everything we have is yours already. God, cause us to be faithful stewards of the blessings you've entrusted to us. Give us hearts to love and serve you. Enable us to show our gratitude for your goodness and mercy by being cheerfully generous with all that we have. And as we come to this table this morning, being reminded that it's because of Jesus Christ, who is our Savior and provider, that we can do these things. So let us not forget what we might take for granted. And it's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen.